0: This is Guns and Butter.
1: There's something happening yeah. yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear.
2: There's a man with a gun over there. We need to recognize that the idea of the massive diversion of military resources into domestic law enforcement uh, for the purposes of suppressing dissent has a long history. Um, and and all throughout that history we've witnessed the steady evisceration of the 1878 Posse Comitatus Act, which is the sole federal statute that criminalizes military incursions into the domain of domestic law enforcement. In fact, the act is the backbone of our democratic-republican tradition of separating the military and police function in this country and represents the ultimate bulwark against military dictatorship in the interests of the rich.
0: I'm Bonnie Faulkner today on guns and butter Frank Morales today's show the coup of 2012. Frank Morales was born and raised in New York City's Lower East Side Jacob Reese Public Housing Projects and attended New York City Public Schools. He has a master's degree in theology and was ordained an Episcopal priest in 1977. Frank Morales has been active in the squatters movement for nearly three decades. In 2004, he founded the campaign to demilitarize the police and currently is co-founder of Organizing for Occupation in New York City. He is the author of numerous articles on both housing squatter issues and police state matters. Today we discuss the 2012 National Defense Authorization Act, the 1878 Posse Comitatus Act, the 1971 Non-Detention Act, the Crisis of Democracy Report issued by the Trilateral Commission, U.S. Army Field Manual 19-15 Civil Disturbance Operations, the 2012 Department of Defense Non-Lethal Weapons Human Effects Characterization, the Electromagnetic Spectrum in Low-Intensity Conflict, and the 1992 Weapons Transfer Agreements. Frank is welcome.
2: Thank you so much, Bonnie. Happy to be with you.
0: Twenty years ago, the Pentagon's Joint Chiefs of Staff held a uh, strategy essay competition. Uh, This according to your new article, The Coup of 2012. What can you tell us about the essay that won the Pentagon essay competition? What was its title and what was it about?
2: Well, the essay was written by Colonel Charles... Dunlap. Um, he was a student at the National War College at the time, and he, as you mentioned, there was a, an essay competition. And his essay entitled The Origins of the American Military Coup of 2012 won the award. Um, needless to say, given its, its subject, it caused quite a bit of uh, uh, scuttlebutt in the halls of the Pentagon. There was a brief mention of it in mainstream press. I think it was in Atlantic magazine. But uh, that's, that was pretty much it. And what it is, it's, a, it's roughly 30-page, and I, I've linked it in, uh, in the article so people can go and read it themselves. It's about 30 pages. Um, it's, a, it's a well-documented, according to the, to the preface of it, quote, darkly imagined excursion into the future, And what it is, it's the ostensibly fictional work, is written from the perspective of an imprisoned senior military officer about to be executed for opposing the military takeover of America, a coup accomplished through quote-unquote legal means. Um, The essay makes the point that the coup was, as it states in the essay, the outgrowth of trends visible as far back as 1992. Now the paper is written in '92, so you, you you follow what I'm suggesting here, including the the author states the massive diversion of military forces to civilian uses, particularly law enforcement. So essentially, what the paper um, puts forward, using real historical data, uh, like for instance the 1981. Congressional Military Cooperation with Civilian Law Enforcement Agencies Act, um, which sanctioned U.S. military involvement in engagement with law enforcement. Uh, the paper, the essay, uh, cites those instances within the context of this fictional scenario of this imprisoned military colonel who's saying with, there was a coup um, due to the fact that the uh, the military was increasingly engaged in domestic police work, and so forth. So. That's um, that's the content of that of that essay, and uh, again, it's it's intriguing, and uh, I think people should take a look at it. I cited it obviously, well, from purely literary point of view, uh, it, it's talking about a military coup in 2012, and here we are. I first read it back oh it, about 94. It was out a couple of years before I I discovered it, and um, and there you have it. But it, what it represents to me. The idea of the coup is that we have been undergoing an ongoing military coup in this country for quite some time now, some would argue um, from the mid-'60s on. And what I've tried to do in the paper is to suggest that the latest maneuver on the part of the, uh, the elite, um, military, corporate uh, elite in this country, uh, utilizing the the Obama administration as its latest front, um, through its passage of the National Defense Authorization Act of 2012, which sanctions the, the detention uh, without trial um, indefinitely of American citizens, to, to show that that latest um, encroachment, if you will, upon our, our civil human um, rights is yet but the latest in a long series of such encroachments, namely the increasing symbiosis become identification of the military and police function in America, a a bringing together of those two functions as one, which is a classical definition of the police state. So I use the um, the essay by Colonel Dunlap as a metaphor for the ongoing coup um specifically understood as the militarization of domestic law enforcement and its its consequences which include of course the suppression of dissent and our right of free assembly and the right of uh of protest and so forth
0: well with regard to this 2012 national defense authorization act that president obama signed uh did government agencies request this legislation?
2: No, as a matter of fact, um, most well, large sectors of the um, military within uh, elements within the Pentagon, within the, um, the congressional committees that are devoted to facilitating a uh, Pentagon um, largesse financially, um, state adjutant generals who oversee. The the National Guard operations throughout the various states, so-called intelligence uh, professionals within the quote-unquote intelligence community, et cetera, um, opposed this, this uh, detention provision in the uh, National Defense Authorization Act 2012. I mean, obviously, the American people and its uh, representatives are not, at least publicly, agitating for being detained, and for doing away with habeas corpus, namely the right to be accused in a court of law and uh, shown the evidence of of which you're accused, and so forth. So no, it it was not uh, something that grew out of the the call that would have been coming from governmental or military or intelligence sectors, but there is clearly uh, um, a wing, a sector, a, a, a element within the directorship of this country, namely the military and corporate consolidated uh, element of this country, the military-industrial complex, or C. Mills pointed out in the power elite, those two uh, civilian and military sectors. There is an element in the driver's seat within that uh, particular executive uh, uh, function within this country that sees the need to orchestrate this kind of uh, um, move where you create legislation which allows for the executive to pinpoint um, the American citizens, uh, to target them, to define them as terrorists, enemy combatants, unlawful combatants, all the various euphemisms that are being, that utilized for this purpose, and to snatch us off the streets and to detain us in military brigs Um, Fort Leavenworth or any number of other places around the country, Um, there's no shortage of detention centers. Halliburton received close to a $600 million grant a few years back to to create these detention centers and so forth. Um, This sector within the so-called secret government behind the scenes in this country um, has seen fit and will, I fear, continue to see fit to put forward this kind of legislation, moving towards the, uh, the legalization, if you will, of the military coup uh, in America, and uh, appropriately a military coup in 2012. Fortunately, though, um, and this, this statute, as, as some of your listeners may know, allows for um, the detention of those who are uh, deemed, in some sense, enemy combatants, uh, so-called covered persons, according to the edict's lingo. Um, So and that includes any person who planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks on September 11, harbored those responsible, was part of al-Qaeda or the Taliban, or, and this is the important uh, point here, associated forces that are engaged in hostilities against the United States or its coalition partners. Um, And these associated forces and the various other vagaries of the legislation allow for, according to most people who have looked at the bill, the detention of the American people, American citizens without trial. Now, a recent report from the uh, Congressional Research Service um, fleshes out the law of detention uh, much more uh, thoroughly and identifies what is true as well as what is unsettled and unresolved. For instance, it's perfectly clear that a U.S. citizen who fights alongside quote-unquote enemy forces against the United States on a foreign battlefield could be lawfully detained. Uh, This has been affirmed by the Supreme Court. On the other hand, this is the Congressional Research Service report, explains that the president's legal authority to militarily detain terrorist suspects apprehended in the U.S., has not been definitively settled nor has Congress helped to settle it this bill according to um, Senator uh, Dianne Feinstein the bill and uh, now law does not endorse either side's interpretation but leaves it to the courts to decide so essentially what the CRS report comes down in the end uh, stating and what what most seem to think is that the particular laws that allow for the, uh, the outright detention of American citizens and the throwing away the key, so to speak, um, is an unsettled question. Well, nonetheless, we have reason to fear because the fact that we're even discussing this, um, you can have confidence that we will once again be confronted with, with this kind of approach, this, this tightening of the noose, so to speak around uh, military uh, assets in, in behest of corporate uh, interests, seeking to limit our mobility, our, our free expression, our, our ability to associate and organize and dissent, and so forth. Fortunately, on May 16th, this past May 16th, uh, a newly appointed federal district judge here in New York, Catherine Forrest of the Southern District of New York, issued a ruling. Which preliminarily enjoins, i.e., prohibits enforcement of this indefinite detention provision, Section 1021 of the NDAA 2012. The order, the temporary restraining of TRO, came as a result of a lawsuit brought by seven dissident plaintiffs, including Chris Hedges and Dan Ellsberg, Noam Chomsky, and others, claiming that it violated their First Amendment as well as due process rights guaranteed under the Constitution. Their suit um, was successful, and to the extent that uh, Judge Forrest ruled in this way. Now, her ruling is not permanent. Um, a day after the ruling, the Wall Street Journal, for its part, uh, offered its, uh, its view, pontificating that the ruling will be overturned on appeal, strutting that its reasoning needs to be deconstructed so that it doesn't do more harm in the meantime, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, Lo and behold, a week later, on the 25th of May, federal prosecutors from Obama's Department of Justice called Judge Forrest's ruling um, extraordinary, quote-unquote, suggested that she lift the injunction. One can only imagine the pressure that was put on for her to do just that. Uh, Fortunately, a few days later, on the 6th of June, Judge Forrest responded with an eight-page memorandum and opinion in which she sought to eliminate any doubt as to the May 16th order's scope. What the uh, Obama people were suggesting was that her ruling, her temporary prohibiting of detaining American citizens without trial, um, only applied to those who had issued the suit. And she was very clear um, as to whom her order was intended, Uh, quote, the May 16th order enjoined enforcement of section 1021 against anyone until further action by this or a higher court or by Congress. So that's where we stand now. Judge Forrest has stood firm. She has uh, prohibited and joined um, enforcement of that particular section. And uh, now we'll see where it goes from here in the course. But again, from a pragmatic point of view, the fact that we are discussing um, detention of American citizens deemed unlawful combatants, which, as I mentioned before, is a euphemism which manifests exactly what it is I'm talking about, the symbiosis and identification of law enforcement, unlawful combatant, military. It's an attempt to bridge those two sectors, concepts, institutions, agencies within our country um, as tantamount to the consolidation of a police state.
0: I'm speaking with Episcopal priest and housing and police state activist Frank Morales. Today's show, The Coup of 2012. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Well, right, and the designation of a U.S. citizen as an enemy combatant can simply be made by the White House, by who else? I mean, everyone is at risk, right? Because that designation could be put on any of us.
2: Sure. Yeah. I mean, practically speaking, it it may come down to a few um, folks in the White House who sit around with lists that are handed to them uh, through various surveillance, uh, Department of Homeland Security, local CIA assets working within America, et cetera, et cetera, and uh, who become uh, targeted by this uh, apparatus, and done so uh, in, a, in, a, in a legal way. We have to remember that, not to sound overly provocative, but even within the uh, Nazi period, um, there's a great book called Hitler's Justice by Ingo Mueller, which, which talks about this. The Nazis, didn't come and just roll away uh, um, the court system, push to negate it directly. They created a parallel legal system so that here in America, through the creation of military tribunals, because don't forget, these detained persons would wind up in that particular venue. And those, those uh, structures created um, by Bush's uh, executive orders and, and military orders back in uh, 2002, and henceforth, uh, most recent 2009, the Obama People signed um, the Military Commissions Act, uh, which further consolidates this whole structure, uh, legalizing, if you will, their whim um, after the fact, because that's the way power works. It doesn't. It doesn't play by the rules. It creates rules and then sanctions them after the fact, and that's what this military commission structure. So that's um, that's the kind of thing that. Uh, we're looking at here with the, uh, the NDAA. So it's important that people not lose uh, sight of the fact that, that Catherine Forrest's decision is not the end of the road here. We dodged a bullet, so to speak, but it's very important that we now move preemptively as a, as a movement throughout the country in locales to delegitimize and demilitarize our law enforcement. And we can talk some more about that later.
0: Well, okay, so then for the moment, Judge Forrest's ruling stands with regard to the NDAA and that um, American citizens for the moment, that is, cannot be picked up and held in in indefinite detention with no charges, etc. Now, when we were talking about enemy combatants and that designation, that reminded me of that uh, very famous uh, New York Times article of a month or two ago about President Obama's secret kill list that he studies on Terror Tuesday. Every morning uh, he goes through an actual list of people, supposedly uh, in foreign countries, but I suppose they could be anywhere, American citizens for sure. It's an assassinations list. And that is how uh, this American citizen in Yemen, Al was actually assassinated by drones, right?
2: Yeah. The Obama administration, as I said, the attempt by the executive to designate American citizens for detention without trial, which is a naked violation of the Fourth and Fifth Amendments of the Constitution against unreasonable search and seizure and the guarantee of a trial, we need to remember was preceded by this administration's, quote, resolve to assassinate at will Americans abroad, place them on a kill list, and eliminate them, according to uh, the New York Times, as you mentioned, secret kill list article on uh, May 29th of this year. The article in The New York Times speaks in terms of the president and his advisors having made it clear that they have the authority to, quote, order the targeted killing of an American citizen in a country with which the United States was not at war in secret and without the benefit of a trial. Now, the Justice Department's Office of Legal Counsel rationalized such a move in a lengthy memo justifying the extraordinary step asserting that while the Fifth Amendment's guarantee of due process applied, it could be satisfied by internal deliberations in the executive branch, quote unquote. Um, Well, according to what we've learned later, these internal deliberations uh, allowed for Mr. Obama to give his approval. And the cleric uh, Anwar al awlak was assassinated on September 2011, along with an associate, Samir Khan, an American citizen who was not even on the target list, but happened to be traveling with Mr. al-Awlak So um, apparently campaign rhetoric and public demeanor to the contrary, when asked what surprised him most about Mr. Obama, this is according to the New York Times piece, Mr. Donilon who is the national security adviser, he answered immediately, he's a president who is quite comfortable with the use of force on behalf of the United States. So not only are we facing the increasing likelihood of the lawful means of detention without trial in America, but um, in addition to that, the reality of lawful means of assassinating American citizens is also something that's being bandied about by this administration.
0: In your essay, The Coup of 2012, you ask the question, how did we get here? Well, how did we get here? And what is the history leading up to today's extraordinary legislation? For instance, what is a posse comitatus? And what is important about the 1878 Posse Comitatus Act in preventing dictatorship?
2: Well, we need to recognize that, as uh, was pointed out in the article on the military coup, Uh, Colonel Dunlap's piece, the idea of the massive diversion of military resources into domestic law enforcement uh, for the purposes of suppressing dissent has a long history. Um, and, And all throughout that history, we've witnessed the steady evisceration of the 1878 Posse Comitatus Act, which is the sole federal statute that criminalizes military incursions into the domain of domestic law enforcement. In fact, the act is the backbone of our democratic, republican tradition of separating the military and police function in this country, and represents the ultimate bulwark against military dictatorship in the interests of the rich. This is the reason it is and continues to be attacked, ridiculed, and ignored by elements in both the corporate and the military spheres. In the article, I cite a few current pieces in military sectors that fall into this category, in seeking to delegitimize and undercut the status of the importance of this act, a law which is so critical to the maintenance of our freedoms, and yet a law which most Americans remain unaware. The Posse Comitatus Act, for those who are unfamiliar with it, is a, is a relatively short statute. It's a criminal statute, and it states that whoever except in cases and under circumstances expressly authorized by the Constitution or Act of Congress willfully uses any part of the Army or the Air Force as a posse comitatus or otherwise to execute the laws shall be fined under this title or imprisoned not more than two years or both. So what uh, the Posse Comitatus Act represents is a clear intention of maintaining a strict delineation between the military and the police function in America. And what has occurred over the last... 30 to 40 years in this country is an increasing evisceration of this act, uh, such that now we are looking at a de facto, um, we live in a context of de facto repeal of the act, although it's still on the books and for all intents and purposes could be utilized by progressive forces in opposition to the militarization of law enforcement and the, the military coup in America. The um, utilization of unpersoned drones, aircraft within America, utilizing these drones in terms of surveillance, which is being talked about in the most recent NDAA 2013 and other other uh, things. This is a, this is a process that it's 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 hard to keep track of because it's moving with such haste. But we can go back as early as 1968. Um, And the U.S. Army's institutionalization of a civil disturbance plan, uh, Operation Garden Plot, which um, is the ongoing uh, means by which the military engages in so-called suppression of civil disturbance, i.e. suppression of dissent within America. Um, The Garden Plot Operation, which literally speaking is a a roughly 200-page document which includes so called quote unquote tactics, techniques, and procedures, which is a military euphemism to suppress protest, um, is now been encompassed within the uh, Northcom sector of the Pentagon, which is the Northern Command, whose focus is on assisting law enforcement in America, the Northern Military Command. It's a domestic military command. Well, Garden Plot is now subsumed. Under the uh, the Northcom apparatus, well, Garden Plot began in 1968. A few years later, um, the Congress passed, in reaction to the detention of 7,000 anti-war protesters, the 1971 Non-Detention Act. And we should recall now that this 1971 Non-Detention Act, which was passed as a consequence of the unlawful imprisonment of 7,000 anti-war protesters in D.C. Um, was and is still um, operative as a, as a thorn in the side of this latest detention maneuver. So we should know that uh, there is this, this act, the 1971 Non-Detention Act, which was passed um, specifically to repeal the 1950 Anti-Communist Emergency Detention Act, which allowed for the detention of suspected subversives without the normal constitutional checks required for imprisonment. Uh, So this is what we're hearing now, correct?
0: Well, Frank, what is the 1971 Non-Detention Act, and and what was the outcome of its use in the defense of Jose Padilla?
2: Well, it it came into play in his defense, such that he was then accorded uh, limited uh, access to domestic courts and so forth. But it's really um, only now... That the uh, the value and the utility of this act is coming into play, but yes, it's there. It was it was passed uh, immediately on the heels of this protest and to repeal the 1950 detention act and so forth. Um, it reads that quote: "No citizen shall be imprisoned or otherwise detained by the United States except pursuant to an act of Congress." Um, and in recent years, that statute has been used to to challenge military detainment. And as you said. Um, as in the case of, of Jose Padilla.
0: I'm speaking with Episcopal priest and housing and police state activist Frank Morales. Today's show, The Coup of 2012. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. What is the Crisis of Democracy report issued by the Trilateral Commission and, and who authored it?
2: Well. As I've been pointing out, what we're looking at here in general is a dialectic um, between the military and corporate um, elite, consolidated um, in the interests of uh, maintaining the capitalist ship of state, so to speak, maintaining the profits and privileges of the elite in this country against the great majority of the American people. So we're looking at these two. Um, to ongoing sectors, with congressional rationalizing along the way. But you have the military issuing directives like U.S. Army Field Manual 19-15, civil disturbance operations. Um, You have the Pentagon issuing Department of Defense directives on DOD cooperation with civilian law enforcement. And as I said, you have the Congress um, passing uh, military cooperation with uh, law enforcement acts and so forth. So you have Pentagon, congressional. Uh, in lockstep around this whole question of militarization of law enforcement. The corporate sector as well, part of this dialectic. So in 1995, the Council on Foreign Relations, which is a construct of, uh, you know, the the banks, Chase Bank and other corporate elements, uh, an elite policymaker headquartered in, in New York City. In 1995 the uh, Independent Task Force on Non-Lethal Weapons of the Council on Foreign Relations issued a report which uh, stressed the need to assess the current status of non-lethal weapons development, um, essentially advocating the increased um, development and research and development uh, at the Pentagon in the area of so-called non-lethal weapons, which are weapons designed to suppress dissent, Um, to uh, suppress civilian uh, uh, protest and so forth.
0: Who was its director and and what was he well known for?
2: The director of the CFR task force was a gentleman by the name of W. Montague Winfield, who is a general in the uh, military. He's a former executive officer to the commander of the stabilization force stationed in Sarajevo, um, Yugoslavia. Also, uh, a 1998-99 CFR military fellow, quote unquote, Brigadier General Winfield, was, uh, along with chairing this independent task force on non-lethal weapons, was the deputy director for operations in the National Military Command Center at the Pentagon on the morning of 9/11. Um, some of the listeners may recall that he was the person who, according to the 9/11 Commission, left his very important post at the National Military Command Center. Remember, there was this whole story about this lack of communication, and the, the pilots didn't know where they were going, and all this, this chaos. Um, well, he's the guy who left his post that very morning to attend a, a so-called pre scheduled meeting and allowed a colleague who had only recently qualified to take over his position and uh, standing in for him. And he didn't return to his post until after the terrorist attacks, the so-called attacks, the uh, terrorist attacks had had ended. Um, he is the person who was tasked with that responsibility that morning, um, the CFR uh, military fellow, and he is also the person who chaired the independent task force on non-lethal weapons at the Pentagon. So, there you have a, another example of um, this this close collaborative relationship between the military and the Pentagon, um, not only in the area of non-lethal weapons, but as pointed out here in the uh, imaginations of
0: 9-11. Well, with regard to non-lethal weapons, what are soft-kill and neuro-weapons? And while we're at it, what is the May seventeenth, two 2012 Department of Defense Instruction 3200.19, entitled Non-Lethal Weapons, Human Effects Characterization.
2: Well, this uh, directive, which was recently issued, establishes policy and responsibilities for procedures for what they refer to as human effects characterization and created a human effects review board Basically, what it does is is it attempts to scientifically calibrate um, levels and quotients of pain and suffering. Um, The the whole non-lethal structure, which is headed up by the uh, Joint Directorate for Non-Lethal Weapons at the Pentagon and buttressed with various um, Joint Chiefs directives on non-lethal weapons and so forth, which are mandated to be rheostatic, in other words, tunable, and so forth, according to the uh, to the governing directives from the uh, Joint Chiefs, um, what the human effects panels and and review processes that are part of this this whole apparatus of non-lethal weapons, uh, let alone the uh, the R and D and the production of these weapons by Pentagon and private sources, the human effects attempts to uh, get a better handle on the nature of the effects that these uh, weapons have on human beings. So that um, the Pentagon has created what it calls, it's a computerized um, um, virtual human to test these uh, levels of pain uh, and psychological distress caused by these weapons. It sounds Orwellian, but in fact, uh, the University of Pennsylvania at its uh, non-lethal school there to study the these effects as well as the University of New Hampshire. Both uh, are the site of Pentagon-funded um, human effects and nonlethal weapons uh, study uh, and so forth, and it includes this. So this latest uh, directive, this recent May 17th directive, as you point out, um, establishes a human effects review board, which uh, is presumably set up to review how effective these weapons are disabling folks, and in particular the effects that would accrue from weapons like the electromagnetic pulse weaponry that has been tested and is now being utilized in various contexts and so forth to disperse crowds and microwave weapons and so forth. Well, all of these are subject to testing, and these are the tests we know about. We know, of course, that um, CIA and Pentagon um, so-called mind control uh, approaches to controlling behavior and modifying behavior have long been part of uh, clandestine trials, so that uh, people are unwittingly made uh, pawns to these uh, these trials, while at, at the very same time suffering the effects of these weapons. These are the above-ground means by which these so-called human effects are are tried and uh, tried out and quantified and levels of pain. And even level, I mean, I read studies, for instance, where um, medical people uh, were calibrating the depth of uh, a plastic bullet, how far in it goes into the skin upon contact at various uh, levels and distances um, and so forth. But all of these these weapons of which there is now and has been um, well, a, a booming industry in the creation of these so-called weapons um, have these human effects criteria tied into them. So they're, they're subject to, to various tests before they can be deployed. So that's what that's all about. It's part of the, the Orwellian nightmarish aspect of the, uh, the day-to-day life of the Pentagon and our lives here in America, where you have universities um, studying ways and means to disable people in utilizing quotients of pain and suffering and what is palatable and and so forth. The whole notion of non-lethal weapons is designed to provide a media-friendly way of, uh, of suppressing the population. When CFR, as we mentioned before, was engaged and still is in pushing the Pentagon into developing these weapons, And you read the documents and the articles and the task force reports, and that's what it was. It's the suits telling the generals, get on the stick here. We need something that we can utilize um, and uh, unleash industry to develop these weapons and so forth. What they were calling for, and this is a quote, they wanted some weapons, uh, non-lethal weapons, so-called non-lethal weapons that could manifest themselves between what they call diplomatic table-thumping, and outright annihilation. <laughs> they wanted something in between that that um, could be used to suppress uh, non-combatant opposition to uh, you know to the new world order policies that they're they're attempting to implement in these various locales, including uh, suppressing American citizens and our right uh, to dissent.
0: Now, a quote from your essay: You say. The University of New Hampshire's Non-Lethal Technology Innovation Center was created by a grant from the Department of Defense's Joint Non-Lethal Weapons Directorate to, quote, effect the next generation of non-lethal capabilities. The society's scope of interests includes the impact of non-lethal or less lethal force intervention on sustained attention, performance degradation, due to fatigue or intentional distraction, compliance, vigilance, and stress resilience. The society, given its specific intent on affecting, quote, motivational behavior, is keen on identifying disciplines that support the development of tools of behavioral modification through force, among other things kinetic and electromagnetic energies, psychological operations. This is very, very serious. They're talking about disabling people altogether, which is what you've said. And this type of weaponry is invisible. I mean, would people even know this was going on?
2: No, uh, no. And, and as you're, you're quoting from this uh, University of New Hampshire Non-Lethal Technology Innovation Center, which uh, was you know, massively funded by the Pentagon and so forth, And it's a society of force effectiveness and so forth. These are the terms they're speaking in. The the behavior modification through force, uh, that says it all, doesn't it, Um, allows for this. What the electromagnetic weaponry does, given that it's, as I said before, the mandate within the Joint Chiefs Directorate on Non-Lethal Weapons, the policy statement, if you will, 234, paragraph policy statement of the Joint Chiefs on nonlethal weapons designates that these weapons be rheostatic, that is, tunable. Now, what that means is that in the case of, of electromagnetic pulse weapons and microwave weapons, tuning them down, so to speak, um, creates the potential for the intrusion of these, these electromagnetic waves and so forth. Um, and again, I'm not a physicist, and, and I'm doing the best I can to just explain this. But it allows for the intrusion of these of these weapons, unbeknownst to the to the victim, because you don't feel the the crowd dispersal aspects of of these weapons is to heat skin to uh, you know a, a high degree and and hence disperse people. So that's the that's that's tuning it up, so to speak. Tuning it down allows for the integration of these. These uh, electromagnetic waves with the the um, the, the natural electromagnetic um, uh, rhythms and algorithms of the human body and of the uh, and, and of the brain, so that by creating um, uh, patterns within the weaponry that mimic states of anger and uh, dis disassociation uh, and so forth, the possibilities are evident to uh, modify a person's behavior through the utilization of these electromagnetic weapons, tuned accordingly, um, you would not know that that, uh, you're being affected in this way. Um, This may sound far-fetched, but back in 1986, Marine Corps Captain Paul Tyler uh, authored uh, a study entitled The Electromagnetic Spectrum in Low-Intensity Conflict. Um, And he was making the point that The potential applications of artificial electromagnetic fields are wide-ranging and can be used in many military or quasi-military situations, including crowd control. At the time, he pointed out that although scientists hadn't identified electromagnetism for what it really was until the 18th century, quote, the results of many studies that have been published in the last few years indicate that specific biological effects can be achieved by controlling the various parameters of the electromagnetic field. And further, many of the clinical effects of electromagnetic radiation have been reported in the literature to induce or enhance the following effects, including electroanesthesia, behavior modification in animals, altered electroencephalograms in animals and humans, altered brain morphology in animals, altered firing of neuronal cells. According to Captain Tyler, quote, a 1982 Air Force review of biotechnology had this to say. Currently available data allow the projection, this is in 82, that specifically generated radio frequency radiation fields may pose powerful and revolutionary anti-personnel military threats. Electroshock therapy indicates the ability of induced electric current to completely interrupt mental functioning for short periods of time, to obtain cognition for longer periods, and to restructure emotional response over prolonged intervals. Further, experience with electroshock therapy... Uh, radio radio frequency fields experiments and the increasing understanding of the brain as an electrically mediated organ suggested the serious probability that impressed electromagnetic fields can be disruptive to purposeful behavior and may be capable of directing and or interrogating such behavior, while the passage of approximately 100 million perez through myocardium, can can lead to cardiac standstill and death, again pointing to a speed of light weapons effect, end of quote. That's according to Captain Tyler's um, article back in 1982, in which he talks about some aspects of electromagnetic weaponry as applied to low-intensity
0: conflict. I'm speaking with Episcopal priest and housing and police state activist, Frank Morales, today's show, The Coup of 2012. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Okay, so these capabilities are present and have been present for some time. Yes. Uh, the military has this capability. Now, do you know some of the corporations, for instance, in the private sector, that have done research and development? And uh, helped in uh, developing this kind of uh, invisible weaponry.
2: Mostly, these are contracts that are maintained through DARPA or through some of the other affiliates of, of the Pentagon.
0: Was it safe to say that, say, Raytheon? I think you mentioned in one of your articles or um, Lockheed Martin. Aren't they involved? I mean, these oh, are military sure. military contracts. No, 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 no.
2: There's no question that the the um, the, the standard partners. Within the Pentagon corporate framework, um, Lockheed, Raytheon, and so forth, would be part of this uh, non-lethal weapons production. But what the non-lethal boom in this technology, and the again to just to reinforce the point here, the boom in a technology that is utilized via law enforcement in order to suppress dissent and uh, against uh, civilian populations and so forth. Is buttressed by an emerging uh, number of smaller players who uh, constitute this this uh, this boom in so-called non-lethal technology. But yeah, the, uh, the the big players are of course are involved. The main point here is that the corporate sector, led initially by the Council on Foreign Relations, uh, promoting these weapons, is hell-bent on creating options and means of suppressing non-combatant, i.e. non-violent resistance to the agenda, the corporate military agenda in this country, and hence the uh, the derivation and the emergence of these uh, non-lethal weapons in a very big way.
0: What about the 1992 weapons transfer under Clinton? What was this about? And historically, this kind of weapons transfer was made only for foreign governments, isn't that right?
2: Yeah. In 1971, the um, California Specialized Training Institute was formed in California, in your neck of the woods there, right? And that California Specialized Training Institute originated the SWAT concept, the uh, special weapons and tactics, the militarization of local law enforcement, the creation of these so-called special operations units within local police departments and so forth. Under the uh, head of Louis Giafrida. Who came out of Army Combat Command, who later was the first uh, director of FEMA, the California Specialized Training Institute uh, offered a number of courses in so-called civil disorder management. Um, as part of this training, the recommendations and the, the notions of the increasing level of weaponry within local police departments uh, emerged. Early on, these recommendations were there. It was going back to uh, the late 60s. Any case. At this time, with the creation of SWAT units around the country uh, proliferating through the 60s and through the 70s, the whole question of weaponry was also part of these discussions and these requirements, such that the various military weaponry that would be available to local law enforcement would be gotten through secondhand means, through the so-called black markets, and so forth. So it wasn't something that was formalized to that extent. Well, by 1992, Clinton's Justice Department consolidated a partnership with the Pentagon in the area of, quote-unquote, technology transfer. And these technology transfer agreements, these memoranda between the the, uh, Justice Department and the Pentagon, um, formalized this transfer of weaponry, military technology, to domestic police organizations to better fight crime. In the August uh, 1995 issue of the National Institute of Justice Journal, in an article entitled Technology Transfer from Defense Concealed Weapons Detection, the article makes the point that the uh, Clinton administration um, enhanced and formalized these direct militarization of police forces, um, citing the need to better fight crime um, and so forth. Uh, But in, in actuality, what this represented was a formalization, and as I've said, these processes the militarization of law enforcement, the military coup has been an ongoing process throughout this period over the last 30 to 40 years, um, and so forth. The formalization of these technology transfers now um, through technology transfer agreements, the latest um, in 2007, and an earlier. Uh, National Defense Authorization Act. Uh, There was a a provision under Title 14 of the NDAA 2007 entitled Homeland Defense Technology Transfer Legislative Provisions. And that authorizes the Secretary of Defense to create a Homeland Defense Technology Transfer Consortium. So see how far we've come, right? Um, And this consortium is meant to improve the effectiveness of Department of Defense processes for identifying and deploying relevant DOD technology to federal, state, and local first responders." End of quote. In other words, the, the law facilitates the transfer of the newest and so-called crowd control and surveillance technology to localized, um, we might say politicized, police units around the country. So, the history of the technology transfers is really when you get right down to it uh, where the rubber hits the road in terms of the militarization of law enforcement, because this is the, the emergence, the procurement of weapons by these local police departments around the country that are utilized to suppress um, our rights and uh, freedoms as American people.
0: So then, would you say that there's a counter-revolution taking place in America?
2: I think the counter-revolution, it's an ongoing counter-revolution. So we need to think of this in dialectical terms. This is not a static situation. Um, We had a great uh, level of upsurge in the 60s and and, uh, counter-consciousness and revolutionary upsurge and growth in awareness. The reaction sets in in the mid-70s and obviously through uh, historical moments like the Reagan era and so forth straight through to the period that we're in right now in which we are looking at the, uh, the consolidation of a police state in America, which has been in the process for a long time. So one of the things that, that I've been um, pushing and hoping that um, people can begin to think in terms of organizing locally is to reassert and reaffirm um, on the local legislative level, in city councils and in state governments and so forth, posse comitatus-like legislation. I know that around the country there are numbers of groups and states, governments and so forth that are creating opposition to the detention provisions of the NDAA that we've been discussing. We need to go further than that. We need to create resolutions and laws that criminalize the militarization of law enforcement. We need to uh, de-swat the uh, local law enforcement. We need to get a hold of the budgets and the, uh, the contracts of local police departments around the country and identify ways in which the, 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 uh, the military is engaged with local law enforcement and to create uh, a separation, to criminalize those relationships through legislation and resolutions on the local level. I'll give you one example. During the RNC in 2004 in New York, a number of people got together and politicized and created awareness within the Midtown area of Manhattan, where the convention was to take place, around the fact that the police department, the NYPD, had a lot of nonlethal gas, CS and CN gas, as part of its arsenal. How did we find this out? Well, through acquisition of contracts that the NYPD had with these companies. So once we get a hold of, of that information and the citizenry can get this information through a diligence and a suing, if possible, to identify what weapons the police department have to create resolutions against relationships with those companies. And so the people in the, in the local community around Madison Square Garden during the RNC were made aware that the police had these. Kinds of weapons. They informed the police department that they were not interested in having these gases wafting up into their into their suites and their their uh, apartments, um, which the um, Lancet and other medical journals had shown that gases like CN and CS over periods of time can lead to uh, cancer. Uh, we were able to publicly enforce not through legislation, if you will, but through public opinion, the shelving of this uh, technology, such that we've not yet seen the use of these gases here in New York City. Um, knock on wood. But it was just an example in the ways in which local communities can demilitarize the police departments in their communities, um, create laws that disallow um, soldiers coming into your communities to detain local citizens. Uh, that's the NDAA element. But under that general heading, to organize on the grassroots, to demilitarize our country, um, and as a first step, if you will, towards a demilitarizing, deconstructing of the Pentagon and all its uh, evil machinations that we allow, uh, to the extent that we are not um, able to prohibit the uh, destruction and the violence that we wreak around the world. And the pain and suffering that we cause. Again, all in the interests of greed and the uh, you know, the endless greed of the, the corporate elite in America.
0: Frank Morales, thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Bonnie. There's something happening here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. What it is ain't exactly clear. There's a man with a gun
0: over there. I've been speaking with Frank Morales. Today's show has been The Coup of 2012. Frank Morales was born and raised in New York City's Lower East Side and attended New York City Public Schools. He has a master's degree in theology and was ordained an Episcopal priest in 1977. Frank Morales has been active in the squatters movement for nearly three decades. In 2004, he founded the Campaign to Demilitarize the Police and currently is co-founder of Organizing for Occupation in New York City. He is the author of numerous articles on both housing squatter issues and police state matters. He is the author of Police State America. Articles he has authored on police state matters include The Coup of 2012, Justice for RFK, The Militarization of the Police, U.S. Military Civil Disturbance Planning, The War at Home, The Pentagon Declares War on America, Bush moves toward martial law, electromagnetic weapons, and non-lethal warfare. Frank Morales can be contacted by email at frm at panics.com. That's F-R-M at P-A-N-I-X dot C-O-M. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yaro Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, Email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's B-L-F-A-U-L-K-N-E-R at yahoo.com. Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org. That's G-U-N-S-A-N-D-B-U-T-T-E-R dot O-R-G. Hey, yo, these are some
1: serious times that we live in, G, And our new world order is about to begin. You know what I'm saying? question is are you ready for the real revolution which is the evolution of the mind if you seek then you shall find that we all come from the divine you dig what i'm saying now if you take heed to the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all you understand what i'm saying this is a call to all you sleeping souls wake up control of your own cypher, and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper, trying to steal your life, you know what I'm saying, look what decides yourself, for peace, give thanks, live life, and release, you dig me, you got me?